And thanks to Cry Malt, supplying premium malt for 25 years, this is Radio Brews News. My name is Matt Kirkegaard, founder of Australian Brews News, and as ever, I'm joined by my good friend, confidant and all-round good beer guy, Pete Mitchum. Pete, welcome back. G'day, Matt. G'day, listeners. Good to be back. Mate, how's your week been? Anything uh, yeah, exciting not... happening down in Melbourne at the moment? No, not at the moment. No, I think we're all sort of just uh, plodding along and gearing up. Um, obviously, keeping an ear out on, uh, on the news coming through from CBC, which I'm sure will become more relevant as the podcast goes on and over the next couple of weeks. And I think I had a chance to speak to a couple of brewers in the last couple of days who um, are very keen on the, um, I guess, the uh, are they cautionary tales or are they just sort of, you know, the, uh, yeah, warnings is probably too harsh a word, but uh, just identifying the changes in the, um, the American craft beer scene or the, you know, the beer scene at the moment and uh, I guess what we can expect in similar sort of forms in the next, over the next 12 months or so. Yeah, um, and, and James Atkinson has been over at the Craft Brewers Conference and filed some stories from it. And uh, as we flagged a couple of weeks ago, I recorded an interview with Bart Watson early yesterday morning, Australian time, that we'll play next week. But yeah, there, there does seem to be a lot of uh, stories. It wasn't on the show notes uh, that I'd put down prof, but did you see that Jim Cook from Boston Beer Company had another one of his editorials where he gnashes his teeth about how unfair the beer industry is towards his very large brewery yeah well uh, i didn't say it no but the, the general sort of thing is that it's uh, i guess maybe perhaps the surprising thing to come out this week is that it's those larger brewers um of that size who are the ones who are i guess kind of feeling the pinch and we've spoken a lot about you know the small brew pub model just sort of servicing the local area that seems to be particularly in the states and increasingly here where people are going to i think we're kind of losing that i've got to get the you know i live in wa but i've got to get something from a tiny little brewery up in Brisbane um, I think it's no I want to go to my local place and drink local beer and talk to my local brewer and drink beers that are I guess you know brewed just for me uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that uh, because I'll for something that I'll come to but yeah no the market is maturing um, you know as with any market it doesn't just stay the same and it's something that I feel regularly prop I just feel completely overwhelmed by the number of breweries trying to keep up with them all you know trying to taste even half of the beers that are available um, and it's something that you and I have a professional interest in doing it's very hard work if you just want to enjoy a beer at the end of the day or you know with friends doing it in a in a brew pub is, is the place to go because it is welcoming it provides a point of difference from just a couple of plasma screens and you know pub tab model of, uh, of, of hotels yeah and for the proprietors of same you don't have to go out and chase that wholesale dollar you don't have to fight for taps um and if you if you build a good enough product and I'll, I'll use stomping ground as an example because it's um something that i'm i guess particularly familiar with and, and i've had a good chance to, to chat to the guys about get the product right and people will come to you you really don't you know you still got to, you still got to work hard because once you get them in you've got to make sure they keep coming back but if you don't have to get out on the road and, and hawk your wares so to speak continually to maintain that wholesale side of things it's just a lot easier and i think yeah the the punters are, are responding to that i think we're yeah we're, we're losing that i guess childlike need to you know have the the newest sparkly shiny thing that because everybody else wants it yeah, and that cost of wholesaling beer as is, is well. I don't think a lot of people realise that it's not just the, the cost of the kegs and things like that. If you've got a sales guy on the road and you're paying him, you know, maybe 25 to $30 an hour, plus he's got the car and the phone and parking costs and all, all of that, that's a lot of beer you need to be uh, selling 
to cover the cost of, you know, even as a sales rep who's making, you know, 50 or $60,000 a year with the on costs, you need to move a lot of beer. It's, a, it, it's an expensive business. And if you can just do that in the brewery um, and have people coming to you because you've created that experience you talk about, Prof, yeah, it's, a, it's certainly an interesting model. I just wonder how, you know, and we've talked about it in the past, um, and it's something that I raise with uh, Bart Watson in the interview next week, looking at what that means for traditional pubs. Um, and whether this is the evolution, the brew pub is becoming the new pub or whether it's going to entice more people into the pubs because there's a certain audience for hotels. And if people move from one type of hotel to another, are we going to see some of the old traditional? You know, is, is that just part of the evolution of the bar culture as well? Yeah, and even in the retail space, I spoke to a brewer yesterday who said he'd um, been to the, the best seminar that he'd ever been to in his entire life. And it was uh, it was all about the numbers uh, presented by Nielsen. So I'm not sure if, if James... I happened to catch that one, but the info coming out of it was was quite staggering. It talked about between 70 and 80% of craft beer buying choices are made on price, which I think is something that we kind of think it's not. But, you know, in the States, they have that um, couple of years ago, the price threshold was was $9.99 for a six-pack, believe it or not. You know, we can't even get our six-packs for twice that. But now it's, you know, $8.99. That, that's where you've got to sort of be. Because the, the feedback is that the punters are going in. They're saying, well, you know, I decide that I want uh, an amber ale, and then I like these particular breweries that make one and then I go in and I look along and I go, you know, eight ninety nine, nine ninety nine, nine ninety nine, nine ten ninety nine, I'll have the eight ninety nine, you know, up to eighty percent of the, the cases. So I think that's something that we've talked about predicting happening this year is the that sort of downward price pressure. Quality's still obviously got to be king, but I start to worry that there's perhaps some beer out there in the marketplace that perhaps has passed its best. But it's, you know, it's, it's got to be out there because people are I guess chasing the whether it's a discount or um, trying to put some downward price pressure interesting to say the next next 12 months be very as interesting as the year 2000 was for australian craft yeah i mean that's something that we've talked about you know over the last uh you know two or three years of the podcast and i know that it's something that we've we've put to a couple of our guests that you know when you've got 10 golden ales on the shelves all of which are you know pretty good quality you either spend extra just because you have a emotional attachment or prefer one brand or you save a couple of bucks when you do it. And that's just a trend that happened with you know, mainstream premium. You know, if you go back 15 years ago, if Bex was on sale, you know, Bex, Heineken and Prony were pretty much exactly the same, you would see that used as a sales driver. And of course, it's got to happen in craft. That's just part of the business cycle that you know, price is very, very important. Interestingly, speaking to Bart Watson, the Brewers Association, which we can't forget is a lobbying association or the industry association for the craft beer. So they always you know, advocate for craft beer as opposed to being an impartial observer the way perhaps Nielsen is. They want to talk about that independence is still a major element of the purchasing decision. And that may be something that consumers self-report because we all want to feel a little bit knowledgeable. We all want to feel that we you know, have insight into what we're buying. But just my observation of the of the local beer market is apart from the people who are very deeply immersed in it, the casual beer drinker wants to feel that they're making an independent choice, but they're not going to sit there and research every $19 six-pack of beer to make sure that they are getting what they think that they're getting or what the image of the brand is. Yeah, and at the end of the day, if, if there's next to that, there's a $16.99 uh, six-pack from a non-independent uh, brewer, then, you know, when money talks, bullshit walks. Hmm. 
Yeah. So, uh, but yeah. So, listeners, uh, stay tuned for next week's podcast because we we canvass a few of these issues. And uh, actually, the one other one that I talked about that was probably dealt with in the uh, Nielsen's was that there's been a slight uptick in the number of uh, closures. In you know, I think there was almost 100 brewery closures in 2016, um, which was up from about 75. So it's about you know, not a 25 percent increase or a 30 percent increase in in closures. And the, the Brewers Association made a point of saying, well, you know, in in the business world, 50 percent of businesses close within the first three years. Um, um, and craft brewing is still well under that metric. Fucking that trend, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, and I put to Bart uh, that, well, isn't that actually a hallmark of a bubble, that businesses within your industry are not obeying normal business characteristics of you know a significant failure rate and at the moment beer is the exciting thing there is a lot of hype around it and once that uh, early and we're still in a you know we're still in the early phase we are maturing a little bit with craft beer but once that excitement starts to wear off and it does become a little bit more price sensitive some of the you know less viable operators are going to get found out and instead of having the regular business 50 percent closure rate we may actually see a much higher closure rate for a short period while there's a a, a bit of a washout but anyway, uh, I put that to him and we'll be able to hear his answer next week. But some of those themes that we just talked about, the other thing I had to talk about this week is we got an email from Nigel Ayling from We Love Craft Beer, uh, one of the Facebook beer appreciation groups. Um, and he showed us a note because they've started a new craft beer subscription service called Brewer Direct. And uh, yeah. Nigel is a regular listener and supporter of the show, who dropped us a note to uh, let us know about it. So I thought I would uh, jump online and buy a six-pack of the beer. He did offer to, to send me one, but I don't think you can truly you know, give a, a review of something unless you felt the pain that the average punter you know, from mm. paying for the beer. So I jumped online and bought myself a, a six-pack. And what they're doing, I'll just quote a little bit from the media release, there is no shortage of craft beer subscription services around with a few established players and new ones entering the market regularly. But a new service called Brewer Direct has come up with a twist. Nigel Ayling from We Love Craft Beer says, as a mad craft beer lover, I'm always on the lookout for new and upcoming breweries, the little ones that have just opened and their beers probably haven't made it into bottle shops yet. You see people posting about these breweries in our Facebook group and I really want to try them. But often the brewery don't have any distribution in place yet so you can only buy them from the brewer direct that got me thinking what if we can get the beers from the brewery direct to the beer lovers and that is how i came up with the idea and that's basically it they go to a small little regional brewery put together a six pack that showcases the brewery's beers and send it off to you and i got a six pack of rutherglen's beers beers that i hadn't uh, tried before and yeah, great little service. Uh, ordered it, and I think it, it turned up uh, in two days. Nice packaging, excellent communication at all stages of the delivery. So the service is top notch. I guess the one thing that it, it came down to, Prof, was uh, thirty five dollars for the six pack. Then with fourteen dollars shipping and handling, comes up to forty nine dollars, which is a pretty sharp price for a six pack of beer. Uh, yeah, um, you hit me. Yeah, got me there. I, I was thinking. Gee, what's this going to cost? It's probably you know you're nineteen ninety nine, um, you know let's let's say twenty bucks plus seven bucks for postage and handling. Um, that that's quite surprising. Yeah, so I mean, like it's it's an expensive business, you know. Beer, if you're looking at a a beer, is going to be around nineteen to twenty dollars um, a six pack. Probably from a small brewery, it's going to be closer to twenty five or twenty six dollars, judging at retail prices. Um, but, but that's with already already with retail. Um, the retail margin tacked onto it. That's with the retail margin. But then there, you know, there's a lot of handling involved in going and sourcing. And if you want to run the business, you need to, you're not doing it for free. So that there is a cost to that. And, you know, a fantastic service, but trying to get it um, at, at a price. I mean, I, 
Yeah, for all of the reasons we just talked about, Prof. Uh, you know, there is so much choice these days that I just don't know that I've got the... Um, I don't have that need to spend a carton price to try a relatively obscure uh, or hard-to-get six-pack of beer. It's also, too, Matt, it's with an un, untried product. Mm. That's the other thing. I tried the um, Pale Ale and the Saison last night, and they were both quite... Oh, so it was a mixed six-pack? Mixed six-pack, one of each of oh, the... I didn't catch that bit. Yeah, Rutherglen uh, beers, so it's not just a six-pack okay. of the one beer, so you do get a mixed six-pack. I think you can either buy that or you can buy the 12-pack that's got the double, and it probably ends up being a little bit more affordable in the scheme of things. But again, Prof, you know, you've got that risk. So great service, great idea, and if there is a market for people who are willing to pay a premium for the beers that they and that's probably not you and i prof be fair you know we don't participate heavily in the online discussion forums yeah there was probably a time when we did back when we first met um and we're blogging and we're on top of everything but i guess that's not really us now so look great service but we'll see how it goes whether people are willing to wear that price yeah good luck to them just the only other thing that caught my eye this week in the news was, again, it I guess shows where we're at with the uh, craft beer world and uh, hype seems to be the number one ingredient these days. Hype is the sixth ingredient or the fifth ingredient. Uh, headline screaming, beer made with festival goers urine. Did you catch this one, Prof? No, I didn't. You didn't? Okay. I possibly uh, wouldn't have read past the headline had I stumbled across it anyway. Well, yeah, the first time I thought, oh, here we go. I ignored it. I ignored it. I ignored it. Um, I had visions of the urinals going through a reverse osmosis machine and a brew kit or something along those lines, given the headline. In the end, it was at a beer festival two years ago. They did collect about 50,000 litres of uh, urine. They processed it and then they used it to irrigate the barley fields from which the barley was grown and then the beer was made from the barley that was irrigated partially with urine. So so, so basically it was just beer made with water. Beer made with water. That had been recycled as it is all around the world. As it is, as they say, don't drink the, uh, the water, fish pee in it. Um, so you're really reaching for a, a headline or a novelty act uh, when that's your trick. There you go. So just it's just a completely cynical uh, side. I used to get frustrated when you'd get, uh, you know, when organics or, you know, low food miles first became a thing and you'd get an organic beer sent from England to you. So saying, would you like to try the new organic beer from England that's just landed in Australia? And so I'm going, well, hold on. Isn't sending a beer halfway around the world undermining any reverse carbon footprint yeah why do it if your whole thing is saving the world and i just wonder how much energy went into recycling that urine to do it but anyway before we get to our guest i'd like to just throw in that back on april the first that must have been 2012 i think it might have been we released the first edition of the critics choice australia's best beers and i worked with a, a mate of mine a good mate from ale stars and he came up with a you know a fake front page to release the book, which was basically a, a brewery had developed the slash tray. You know the urinal in the um, in the gents' toilet was was recycling because effectively you know the guys had all been there drinking beer, so what they were weighing out was essentially beer. Um, but it was it was crafted very creatively and very very realistically. Unfortunately, the publishers at the time didn't quite have the the balls to go ahead with it. So I've got it sitting here in 
in front of me that was created by uh, by Steve Roberts, who very sadly passed away on Saturday after a, a short and brutal battle with leukaemia. He's, he'll be known to a lot of people, um, and you and I have spoken about some of his work, which is uh, including the original Cascade Four Seasons marketing. They did a lot of work with Campari, with CUB, uh, with Matilda Bay. So if I may indulge, um, I'll, I'll dedicate this um, this episode of Radio Brews News to um, to Steve and to his family. I was going to ask about that because I saw you had the Ale Stars tribute last night. Yes, yes. There wasn't an empty glass or a dry eye in the house. It was a very nice tribute to a, a, just a terrific guy. And as we know, you know, pretty much everyone who hangs around this, this craft beer thing, they're either, you know, creative, nice, uh, energetic, uh, enthusiastic, inspirational in, in some way or another. And Steve just kind of managed to encapsulate all of those and, and a few more. And then there's us. And then there's us. <laughs> So it was lovely to see the tributes that were posted. You'd posted a photo on your Facebook page, and yeah, you could just see the the comments. It wasn't just the uh, you know clicking like uh, button. People were actually uh, taking time to pay some comments. Yeah, so it's interesting that yeah, we talk about recycling urine, and uh, he came up with that idea. And that's just the made me think of it. it was the the way he thought. You know, it was just sort of taking things and and just sort of saying, well, you know, throw a curveball, give them something that they uh, that they're not expecting. So yeah, very very funny man, and, and will be sadly missed. There you go. Well, uh, thank you for that. Having said that, Prof, we'll uh, introduce our guests now. We've got two guests, uh, James Atkinson, Australian Brewers News Editor, this week Editor-at-Large. He's over in the States. He was there for the Craft Brewers Conference, and he managed to catch up with two of the big names of North American beer writing or beer personage, uh, Randy Mosher uh, and Ray Daniels. So I know you haven't had a chance to to listen to the interviews yet, Prof, so we might just leave James to... I have. Oh, you have? Yeah, I have. We're gone. Yep. The, the, there you go. Yeah. It's only the, the last one you sent me. I haven't, I haven't oh, had a right. chance to okay, listen sorry. to it. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, first two. without any further ado, we'll uh, listen to James having a chat with uh, Randy Mosher, who is the author of such important works as Radical Brewing and Tasting Beer. Tasting Beer is still one of my most thumbed books, Prof. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let's <laughs> listen to James' chat with Randy Mosher. All right, well, Randy Mosher, thanks so much for joining us on Radio Brews News. Um, the first question I wanted to ask you is, it's, it's obviously been a few years now since you've published the original edition of Tasting Beer. How much has changed since 2009 when the first book came out? Well, just in terms of number of breweries in the country, we've doubled it. So more than 5,000 uh, breweries now in the United States, and I think another twelve to 1,500 permits outstanding right now for people who are looking to get going. So it's, it's really just gone crazy. Uh, we see IPA, which has always been important, seem to be more than half the market right now, which is driving a lot of us a little crazy. Um, but, uh, you know, still a lot of excitement, but we've had the big guys step in and purchase a lot of the significant breweries, guys like Lagunitas and uh, Goose Island, of course, and uh, some of those others. So we're starting to see a kind of a shift in ownership and a shift in the tone and tenor, especially with some of those larger craft breweries now owned by the majors. And uh, of course, shelf space is crowded and tap space is incredibly tight. So, uh, you know, we're coming into a sort of a, a different phase, I think, in uh, craft beer in the U.S. anyway. And when you say, when you talk about um, IPA, the, the dominance of IPA is driving us all, uh, you know, a bit crazy, what, what did you mean by that? It's 
what people want to drink. So, you know, as a, as a creative brewer, as somebody's interested in, you know, I, I got into craft beer and, and a lot of people did because prior to craft brewing, there was no variety. We had one kind of beer and now, you know, now we have one Again, we have one kind of beer that's sort of dominating craft beer. Of course, now we, instead of just IPAs, we have white IPAs, black IPAs, red IPAs, lager IPAs, session IPAs, Belgian IPAs, and now the New England or Northeast IPA. So there's still some variety in there, but uh, it, it seems odd to me that it's very hard to sell a dark beer, for example, and people just seem to kind of want this one, like, hit me with the hops and nothing else really matters so and underneath um ipa are there any other underlying style trends that you're seeing that you're particularly positive about well we still see a fair amount of kind of farmhousey uh saisony types of beers i think those are really delightful so that's great we are certainly seeing interest in sessionable beers which i think is great craft pilsners sort of catching on a little bit and uh you know a number of people had some success with those uh, but you know i i would like to see more variety and of course now we have uh, a number of breweries that are specializing in wild and sour kinds of things and i don't think that's a model that can ever really become a large part of the industry because they're challenging to make and end up being very expensive and a little bit hit or miss sometimes too because you're leaving the beer to things that are a bit outside your own control so so uh you know, you have to blend or throw away some parts of batches or things like that. So it's hard to ever see how we could get, how we could scale that up. Plus, it's not to everybody's taste. So how much have the styles um, that you talk about in the new edition of the book changed, um, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, some of the trends that we've been talking about? Are they reflected in the new book? Yes, yes, they are. Uh, managed to get in the New England or Northeast IPA. We started digging into them and really trying to understand what makes them tick. And the haziness is just a sort of a byproduct of having a lot of wheat and oats and other kinds of grains like that in there that provide a certain creamy mouthfeel. So that's one aspect, creamy mouthfeel. The other thing is, is that there's a massive amount of hop aroma, especially hop aroma that is centered on the tropical and the fruity and away from the um, sort of uh, herbal or dank or uh, um, piney sort of characteristics. So it's it's a, a more fruit forward type of hop experience. It's so much so that these beers are really almost impossible to produce and sell in six packs on the store shelf because the cost of the dry hopping and of especially of the varieties that need to be used is so prohibitive and the people who are doing really well with it are mostly selling direct from their own breweries you know they'll they'll have a batch ready they open the doors two hours later it's all sold out onto the next thing and that seems to be the phenomenon and of course selling direct to the consumer from your brewery is great because you make about uh three times as much money or more so it's it's um you know it, it's a good business but it's not scalable and and also because those beers because they have so much hops uh they degrade pretty rapidly on the shelf so even if you're even if you can find a way to get a 17 18 dollar six pack which people just are not willing to generally pay for six packs uh then you have the the issue of uh of the product 
sitting on the shelf and going going stale and you lose all the great characteristics that those beers at their best can really give you so interesting phenomenon but uh i don't know where it certainly can't go much further in that direction you can't cram more hop aroma into a beer than they're than they're doing now so it's it's hard to see where where that could evolve to uh talked about shift and you know 20 years ago amber beer was sort of a malty crystal malt focused um beer that, that was sort of a starter beer for most people in a brew pub and amber has really kind of faded away and turned into red and red has become a pretty hoppy beer often with uh, the addition of rye and sometimes some palm sugar or some things like that and so so it's interesting you've got this this what was once a foundational style for craft beer uh, mostly um, gone away or certainly transformed itself into kind of a darker IPA or a red IPA and so um, so there's that one Oktoberfest is quite a different beer today than it was 10 years ago. Um, the, the, because the traditional Märzen, uh, that amber beer with a fair amount of residual um, carbohydrates in it, was kind of heavy. People in, in, in Munich at the fest found that people would come and they'd have one uh, liter of the traditional Märzen and then they would switch to pills. And so the brewers are like, well, God damn it, we have to drink, we have to have people drink Oktoberfest. So what they did is they lightened up Oktoberfest and switched it from a, uh, a darker uh, beer and kind of took away some of the, uh, the Vienna and Munich malts out of it to make it more like a stronger, they call it export beer. Uh, so six, six and a half percent, uh, but more of a pale colored beer. And they find that people are more, that's more palatable. But I've heard Brewers talking about actually taking away that extra percent of alcohol because they don't like the fact that there are so many beer corpses, as they call them. People are passed out from tourists mostly drinking the beer, and uh, so so that's interesting because you have a style now that's more than a hundred years old that's undergone pretty rapid shift based on what the consumer demand is and and the mechanics of this one specific festival um, driving that that change. So. Has much else changed in the old world um, in the last few years other than that that example? Well, UK has seen a real renaissance in, um, uh, well, a, a real birth of craft beer. They Because uh, they were trying to preserve a traditional style of beer in real ale, they had uh, the camera organization was incredibly anti-modernization, anti-creativity, and they really kept the lid on a lot of innovation, and would, wherever it popped its head up, they would smack it down. And uh, now I think having won the fight to the extent that they could win at all and maintained it kept at least kept real ale alive although a specialty beer that's now opened the door for a lot of other people to start more what on the american model or a mix of american and british model doing doing british beers sometimes even american style beers but with more of a craft uh ethos and point of view and i think that's really exciting to see because I, i'm an art person and i believe art has to change and art has to move you can't ever be static because then you're really kind of going backwards so that's exciting a um, little bit going on in belgium from what i know but the countries like italy and denmark that really didn't have a real strong beer tradition they're starting to go crazy i understand there's some interesting things in spain now in northern Spain. I have, don't have any experience with it. And I'm even getting emails from people in Germany who are saying, oh, we're reading your radical brewing and it's giving us crazy ideas and we're having fun, kind of thumbing our noses at the officials. And uh, I mean, I, the, the tasting beer is now coming out in Ukrainian. So it was really 
thrilling to see, even despite all the crazy stuff that's going on in Ukraine, they're really interested in beer to the point where they thought this book would be a good thing to publish. So, so you know, it's kind of happening everywhere, Latin America and Asia and all over the world, this American model uh, that we kind of based on European models is now bouncing back um, to, to the rest of the world. And uh, that's exciting. With the growth of the craft beer market um, in the U.S., what's your feeling about how beer quality um, has gone along with that? Are you you positive about the direction things are moving in? Quality is a difficult challenge for breweries, especially small breweries. And so there's a really a learning curve for every brewery that starts up. And when you have a situation where you have a lot of new breweries, quality is going to be an issue. Um, Even if you stay small, you know, if you've been brewing for five years you've learned a thing or two and you've learned to be able to uh, to properly taste your beer to get the right help when you need it to check your own instrumentation against uh, outside laboratories to start a quality program so it's just a thing that takes time and I think there are certainly people that get into the business with a huge amount of enthusiasm and a lot of homebrew experience and they get in a commercial brewery and they find it's maybe a little bit harder than they think and uh, you know it just takes a little takes a little time. So I hear reports of some beer that's not as good as we would like, but I think it's just a natural thing that happens during a kind of a really strong growth period like we've seen. So I'm hopeful. There's great beer out there, no doubt about it. And I think it's getting more important to to make good beer because there's so much competition. I know bar owners are very discerning about that kind of thing. And they'll, they'll support you if you're local, if your beer is good, but they're not supporting you just because you're local, no matter what. Sparkling ale is a style that's um, very important in Australian brewing history and I think in the book it was, that the last edition of the book it was listed as a historical style. Has it evolved beyond being a historical style um, in the new edition? Uh, not in the United States. I mean, I think I make reference to it. Um, it's certainly alive in, in Australia, but I don't get down there as often as I would like. So it's hard to, you know, it's a big world and now there's beer everywhere. So it's very hard to keep track of everything that's going on. Sure. Um, and, you know, one, one area that you talk about, or you cover quite extensively in the book also, is, is glassware. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you, you talk about the shaker pint and being possibly the worst possible glass that there could be for beer. Um, from my travels, I haven't noticed anything's really changed there, and it still seems to dominate, um, you know, bars all over the country. Is that something you think we'll ever be able to get rid of, the shaker pint? Uh, no. They're super cheap. They're incredibly durable. You can pound nails with them just about, and they stack. And so um, from a, a, par- a pub owner's point of view, uh, they're, uh, they're just like cockroaches. They're going to stay around forever. What about beer's role in dining? Obviously, you talk quite a lot about food matching in the book. Are you, have you noticed in America that beer's getting the respect it deserves at the, din- at the dinner table? Yeah, I think that's true. Um, certainly, people are thinking about that. Uh, there's been a number of books put out on the subject, and, and we have a, a committee through the uh, Brewers Association, and, and Pat and Ray from Cicerone are in on it, uh, that we're trying to 
look at beer and food pairing and provide a bit more of a scientific basis for it and try and grope our way forward to try and find the most logical, sensible way to talk about beer and food and create some tools that will help people do it and actually even do a little bit of research that starts to kind of break it down and try and understand all this complicated things that are happening in your mouth when, you, when you're doing it. So I think people are taking it seriously for sure. Um, breweries are still doing beer dinners. They're still kind of hit or miss. You know, it's, it's hard to get a tasting where everything's great uh, but uh, beer certainly is uh, very capable in that area and it's, it's something people find fun to do and uh, and uh, not too challenging fantastic um, and the book you've just told me is coming out has just dropped in the last week or so um, do you know where people are going to be able to find it internationally uh, no, I don't. I would just, you know, check your local Amazon listings or whatever, whatever your local uh, online book um, resource would be. Uh, if you've got a, a homebrew shops, probably be carrying it because they quite often have books, uh, places that specialize in cooking books and things like that. I would expect to find it. So um, don't have any strong recommendations. I know it'll be getting down to Australia sooner or later. That's become a, a reasonable market for us. So um, um, just can't say exactly. Will you be doing a promotional uh, tour and if so what are the chances of us seeing, seeing you in Australia? Well I w I'd love to come back. I was down in Melbourne maybe four years ago for a homebrew conference so I have to sit and kind of wait for the phone calls and uh, have people uh, pay my way and come down but I'd, I'd love to come back and, and uh, um, see, what's, see what's going on in the scene. It was pretty exciting before and I know there's a lot more things going on since then so um, look forward to, to coming back. Hopefully we can help with that. Um, Randy Mosher, thanks very much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you, James, for having me. Appreciate it. There you go, Prof. Uh, Randy Mosher. And as I said in the intro, tasting beer is one of my all just regular go-to um, beer books. And uh, great to hear that there's a uh, new version out. Yeah, interesting too to, to hear, I guess, the, um, the changes you know, that, that he's identified. Uh, across the journey and it makes us realize that it's always changing we had a, a very there's a, a quite a robust discussion at, at uh, ale stars at the local tap house down in st kilda race last night about style and judging for style and you know difference between you know american amber and a red ipa you know where the, the lines are blurred and that sort of thing but i think it, it's important that we realize that style is a reasonably recent construct i think it's great for the for the consumers um, who are looking at award-winning beers, and that's you know why well, we have awards is to so that consumers can kind of work out well this is what we reckon is the you know the best of the best, but they need to have some kind you know throw me a bone what you know I don't I don't know where Cologne is or Köln, um, so I don't understand what a Kolsch is. Well, we've kind of created a a style around that, whereas Kölners would have just said, well, it's just it's the beer that we drink, it's not a style. You know what I mean? Very much exactly. Yeah. I think things are changing, and yeah, so I don't think we need to get too hung up on oh, it's a bit dark for an IPA. The only there are a couple of things I think if you if you're going to call a beer a certain thing that it needs to be, um, you know, tick a few boxes. But I don't think we need to get too hung up on, you know, if you like drinking red IPAs, um, and I was lucky enough to be um, having a couple of beers with Dave Padden mm -hmm. from Akasha, who just celebrated their their second brewery, their second birthday of their of their second brewery. Oh, it's already in slip. Dave let one go up. Introduce himself as uh, Dave from Riverside, um, and his amber, his American amber, was just it was just complex, it was nuanced, it was um, just a brute meld of of malt and and hops with a then into a nice dry finish. And if you like that beer, then 
bang, you know, enjoy it. And we, we sort of talked about how, you know, sometimes, you know, somebody, well, it's a, it's a red IPA. If you want it to be a red IPA, go for it. You'll enjoy it just as much. Just as much. Yeah, and th- there does seem to be a little bit of, you know, go, going back to that hype and novelty, um, they're coming up with a new style or, you know, tweaking a style so it's not quite, you know, the, you know, a West Coast IPA. It's not an, an American IPA. It's now a West Coast IPA or a Northeast IPA or some, you know, slight variation on what the IPA is it almost becomes a gimmick or you know we're doing something that's never been done before when even some of the new beer styles are only slight twists on stuff that's gone before anyway yeah but it's a natural progression because we're we're living in a global market now so people have access to beers that they would not have had you know 100 years ago so so beer styles developed around their local area, whether it was around the SARS hop in what's now the Czech Republic. It's, you know, the Burtonised water in England, that sort of thing. Yep. Now we can share all those things. People are now saying, I'm going to take what I love about that, but, geez, I love these hops, or, you know, I'm going to uh, use, what would it be like if I tried it with this yeast? And to some, you know, to some that's always going to be, oh, you know, you're tinkering with, with something that, well, the original's still going to exist. But for somebody else who has no concept of the history of these styles can sort of go, I just really like this beer. It tastes really nice. What is it called? Exactly. Yeah. So I really don't know what to say to that, Prof. I think you've uh, wrapped it up beautifully. Yeah. So how about we get on to uh, James's next uh, interview, which was with Ray Daniels, Lovely. who's the founder of the Cicerone Certification Program. Prof, are you an aspiring Cicerone? Uh, no. Put simply. Any reason for that? Uh, just don't need to. Don't want to. Don't have to. Fair enough. Yeah. Yep. I agree with you. I don't. I know that a lot of people are racing out to do it, and I think it's a, a great um, way to get skills into the industry. But it's you know it's a little bit like a university degree. I don't know that the standardised format that they deliver is necessarily better than you know going out and getting the experience yourself. And sometimes I do worry that it teaches people how to think one way about beer and it standardises beer too much rather than people uh, developing their own thoughts around beer. Yeah, and look, I'm sure there are plenty of people around who have done it and um, the Institute of Beer uh, are doing, I guess, a similar sort of thing. There's probably plenty of people around there who will weigh in on, on our thoughts on this and um, and the discussions that Ray brings up. We probably should uh, let Ray talk, I guess, and then people can make up their mind. We might let Ray talk. This is uh, James Atkinson speaking to Ray Daniels from the Cicerone Certification Programme. Ray Daniels, thanks very much for joining us on Radio Brews News. Glad to do it. Happy to be here. And as um, author of Designing Great Beers, um, which you've just been signing for, for conference delegates just, yep. just prior to meeting with me, um, you know, what's your sense of how beer quality is in the market in the US at the moment? Well, there's a lot of very good beer in the market right now. Um, and uh, certainly the stuff I run into is all good because... I'm I'm lucky, uh, and uh, I guess I have a, a critical eye. But I am hearing uh, from more and more people that there's uh, some stuff out there that's not not very good, um, and that's always a problem when you have rapid rapid proliferation of new breweries. Uh, we saw it in the 1990s uh, in the states when we had a similar uh, build up, rapid build up of breweries, and so there's some of that out there right now. Um, but I do think that uh, the knowledge and the tools are so much better now than they were 20 years ago, uh, that we, we in general, are doing a much better uh, job with quality uh, this time around. What have been the key, um, 
you know, factors in terms of tools and knowledge that you're referring to? Well, I mean, just just, just the books, the publications, the information that's that's available out there uh, to small brewers on how to make beer properly and what the key control points are. Uh, sensory uh, training uh, materials, um, uh, sensory tools in terms of software and things like that that people can uh, can use to do those things. Yeah, none of that basically existed, you know, 20 years ago. Um, uh, when the first uh, craft breweries uh, started up, um, you know, none of the systems and support uh, existed for, for their uh, operation. Um, I, you know, you hear the early, early craft brewers talk about uh, trying to buy malt and calling up a maltster and, and the maltster says, oh, great, you know, how many, how many rail cars of malt do you want? And it's like, oh, no, I just need, like, you know, two bags. And it's like, oh, sorry, we, we don't bag malt. And even if we did, we wouldn't sell, sell you two bags. So, the, you know, that distribution, that uh, uh, availability of product at that small level just didn't exist. So, you know, it's taken 30, 40 years for those services uh, to, 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 to develop fully uh, to the point where we have them today. Is there any excuse for people who who are actually putting that bad beer out out into the marketplace, given the tools that they do have at their disposal? Well, I mean, there's an excuse, but <laughs> that doesn't make it acceptable. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, there's always always going to be people who uh, do things in a slapdash way and uh, uh, you know ignore the resources that they have available to them, or just aren't um, uh, energetic enough to uh, go utilize those resources and implement them. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, ultimately, there's there's no reason why it should be accepted, and uh, that's you know everybody in the industry who's been around for for more than a little bit now is is harping on the quality issue over and over again and trying to make sure everybody gets the quality right, makes good good tasting beer. What are your thoughts on um, the latest craze in IPAs, which is the hazy or New, New England or Northeast IPA? Can I give you a no comment on that? <laughs> No, that's 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 not okay. <laughs> Where's the fun in that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's an interesting thing there. I mean, the, so there's two parts to doing an IPA. One is um, uh, the, the the juicy hop thing, which is big hop flavor and aroma without bitterness or with a very low bitterness component and that basic formulation appeals to me um, and, and so I you know I'm, I'm interested in and intrigued by that however I haven't really had an example that I think delivers on that uh, to the degree that I, I would really like to see it see it do um, and then the other part is this 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 artifice of, of cloudiness which you know is is just that in many cases you know you hear stories of people adding flour to their beer and things like that, and that's just nothing but artifice, pure, pure and simple. Um, the people who, um, you know, are producing a beer that just has a mild haze to it, uh, you know, a veil of haze, if you will, like, okay, fine, you know, it's an unfiltered beer, it's been properly matured, properly finished, uh, you don't have to filter the beer, it doesn't have to be bright uh, for it to be acceptable, but the ones that are murky with, with chunks and junk and, uh, you know, a, a, a a complete um, like looking into a sandstorm and that's uh, kind of ridiculous and, and, and not necessary and probably not good quality beer in a lot of cases. Um, 
So I think there's um, uh, there's a lot of potential there, um, but there's also been some sort of um, uh, some some brewing sins committed, if you will, in, in the process of uh, of a, a poorly defined idea. I know from following you on Twitter that another trend that you haven't been enjoying um, recently is coffee beers. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's quite personal, you know. Um, and I've I've always said I like to keep my stimulants and depressants separate. Um, and uh, I really, I really do. You know, I'm a coffee in the morning, and then I need a, a liter or two of water before I'm ready to, to go after the beer a little, little later in the day, or alcohol of any kind, really. Um, and uh, you know, it's quite simple. I get migraines if I if I mix the two, so I do tend to like like avoiding that. Um, and uh, but if other people like them, like fine, you know, go for it. But it just seems like every time you turn around now, you're finding a, a, a coffee-laced beer of some kind, and sometimes it's not even. Uh, uh, being uh, called out or identified explicitly up front, and uh, somebody I walked into a bar oh, a couple of years ago now, and uh, saw somebody I knew. I said, "Oh, let me give you a beer," and he hands me a beer, and and it was you know kind of amber-looking beer, and and uh, I bring it to my face, and I was like, "This smells like coffee." He says, "Yeah, it's our coffee IPA." I'm like, oh, for God's sakes. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks for the beer, but I can't really drink this. Is it also just that, uh, you know, that the coffee, they're trying to make the coffee do the role that malt should be doing in the beer uh, in some case? Well, yeah, and that, that's sort of what, what I tweeted was was like, hey, you know, here's 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 an idea. If you want a new, interesting, exciting flavor in beer, you know, why don't, why don't you use some malt? Um, you know, we've been making these hop bombs for a really long time, and, um, you know, there's some, some lovely things you can do with malt. And, and yet then we're seeing to turn to other crazy ingredients. Then, you know, a lot of that is um, uh, brewers following what consumers are responding to right now. Um, the use of non-traditional ingredients in beer uh, tends to sort of give you a reason to ballyhoo the beer, gives consumers a reason to say, oh, I've never had that before, I want to taste that. Um, but when it comes to coffee, clearly there are people who like coffee beers um, and and that trend has been around for quite a long time and I, mean, I remember uh, someone in uh, you know a friend in 2004 2005 saying oh you know I really really love you know coffee porter and you know I think it's a really new interesting thing and I was like you mean like this one and this one and this one and this one <laughs> and they're like oh I didn't know there were that many of them out there it's like well yeah a bunch of people are doing that so it, 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 it's not really innovative at this point point. Um, it, it is clearly something some people like, uh, so there you go. Uh, if people like them and they're buying them, then uh, no, no reason not to make them. Uh, I just object to having like so many of them out of the marketplace. Now that we've talked about the style trends that you're, you're not particularly enthusiastic about, what are, the, what are the ones that you're seeing in the States that you're really excited about and hoping they'll continue to grow? Well, I think uh, a couple things. Uh, lagers and, and particularly the maltier lagers. Uh, Hellas, uh, there's several uh, people are making nice Hellas uh, lagers now, including like Ballast Point. You know, they've got this whole um, collection of, you know, hop forward American beers uh, and some even stouts. And I think they even do a coffee stout. And uh, then they've got this lovely little, you know, uh, uh, German style Hellas. And it's like, that's a really nice beer. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's nice to see those out there and some Vienna's and, and things like that. So, 
nice drinkable uh, beers. I enjoy very much. Uh, the other ones are are more in the uh, the Belgian model um, with uh, like a saison or farmhouse uh, style of some type, uh, and a couple of beers near me. Uh, a brewery called Off Color that makes a lovely um, saison inspired beer, certainly called um, uh, Apex Predator, and um, uh, they keep the bitterness nice and low, which uh, I appreciate. But great yeast flavor uh, in the beer. Uh, and there's another local one as well that they call uh, a Potter's beer, that is P-A-T-E-R, um, uh, sort of like a Belgian single Trappist single sort of thing. Uh, in that in that vein. Uh, again, great yeast flavor, uh, not over top uh, over the top on the hops, and so that's kind of a kind of a nice thing. Overall, though, um, is America still a little bit too one-dimensional in terms of the beer styles we're seeing in your in your opinion? Uh, certainly what you see being offered at retail um, in many many cases you know you go in, into a, a specialty craft beer bar and it tends to be you know sort of 60% of the beers are uh, IPA session IPA double IPA uh, somewhere in, in that range don't forget fruit IPA New England IPA Right, brown IPA, rye IPA, yes, uh, all all the the, the variations of of IPA, um, and yeah, and then we have the coffee porters and stouts and the imperial barrel aged, whatever's they are, and it's like, well, you know, where's a, where's a nice drinkable beer that's uh, that's just a you know lovely beer to have on a <laughs> on a normal day uh, instead of something that'll blow you away. So yeah, I think we're a bit obsessed with the IPAs at the moment. Um, one of the things I've said, been saying for a couple years now is, uh, you know, if we basically allow the tyranny of, of IPA to replace the tyranny of American lager, then we really haven't done this craft beer thing right, you know? The whole idea was to be about variety, range of flavors, and, and not just to have move from one beer style that is the dominant beer style to another beer style that is the dominant beer style. Moving on to um, the Cicerone program, um, since we last spoke uh, 18 months ago, probably the biggest change has been the introduction of the advanced level. Um, how's that? How's that been received, and how's that going? Uh, reception has been good. Uh, we've had. Uh we did a full slate of exams last year, I think uh, 12 uh, sessions uh, of exams with uh, up to, well, probably average around 20 people uh, per session. Uh, and, uh, you know, cranking through this year on a similar schedule so far. Uh, we're going to do the first XUS uh, advanced exam uh, in early May uh, over in London, where we have a, quite a collection of certified Cicerones over there. Um, so, yeah, we we're sort of settled into uh, the execution process uh, of uh, being able to plan and execute them on a reliable basis uh, without any, any hiccups and uh, to get them graded and reported in a reasonable period of time. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's going well. Um, uh, people are certainly uh, pursuing it um, uh, at, 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 you know, levels that are, that are great. Um, uh, it gives people uh, a way to advance without have to making, without having to make the jump all the way up to master. 
which I understand you'd been finding there'd been the fail rate was very high for people who were trying to go for master. Yep, yep. No, that's that's exactly right. And um, you know, one of the the, the analogies I think is most appropriate uh, for for what we've done there is, you know, if you think about um, uh, climbing a mountain like Everest, for instance, you know, you know where the peak is, right? That's Master Cicerone. Um, and typically in these big long climbs, they'll have sort of base camps along the way for you to, to stop at. Well, Certified Cicerone was sort of base camp one, and we didn't have any other any other base camps, right? You basically had to once you made it to base camp one, you had to make the climb all the way up to Master in in one jump. What we've done with Advanced basically is gone halfway up the mountain between base camp one and the summit and put in base camp two, and that's what the Advanced Cicerone exam is, and it gives people you know an, another another place to stop uh, along the way, and then you know again decide whether they want to try to press on for the for the summit or whether they're good with good with base camp two. How many people do you now have globally um, qualified at the different levels? Well, let's see what I can pull off the top of my head on that. Um, uh, Master is 13, and uh, I think three of those are ex-US, one Canadian and, and two uh, British. Uh, and uh, advanced, I don't know that number off the top of my head. We're in the, I think, 20 to 30 range, 20 to 40 range, maybe. Uh, I haven't checked the number recently. Um, but the uh, certified Cicerone is uh, in the 2500 range, and then certified beer server is about, uh, well, I think we're closing in on 85,000 certified beer servers uh, at the moment. And what about in the Australian market? Obviously, we've just had um, the second ever, um, you know, exams in Australia. Um, are you confident that it's going to grow its influence over there? Yeah, no, I think I think uh, things are, are getting off the ground uh, in Australia. Uh, we've got uh, our agents over there in Institute of Beer, uh, and they are now uh, managing the schedule uh, for exams and representing us uh, in terms of promoting uh, the program and such, and then uh, providing education uh, to get the ball rolling uh, for people. Um, so yeah, uh, that's sort of the process. Uh, you kind of have to start out. Uh, small and and uh, watch it uh, grow up. Will there be um, exams at the higher level, at the advanced level at any stage in Australia, do you think, soon? Uh, you added soon there at the very end, so I would say no, not, not soon. Um, you know, when you think about uh, the population of certified Cicerones you need to uh, be able to field an exam for, for advanced, you know, it's probably going to be in the at least two to three hundred uh, certified Cicerones to get to the point where, where it would be, you know, we could have enough people to, 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 to take the advanced exam that would be worth coming down there and, and mounting it down there. Um, so uh, I don't think it will be any time soon. It'll probably take... I would guess five years to get that many certified Cicerones uh, put together uh, in Australia, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it'll be a big, big uptake and, and things, will, things will blast off and we'll have a clamoring for advanced and, and that'll happen. 
One of the things that I notice when I come to the US is how mainstream craft beer is in comparison to Australia where it does tend to be more of a niche um, thing at certain bars and, and some pubs will have one or two taps and that's their token craft beer. Um, has that created um, you know, uh, even more need for, for what Cicerone's trying to do in, you know, in terms of um, so many venues are pouring craft beer now that it's really hard to, to, to get that level of beer service that, you, that you're looking for? Well, uh, yes. I mean, I think the more uh, complex the choices are um, for the consumer, uh, the more need there is for uh, an educated server that can talk about beer flavor uh, with some some capability and can understand um, uh, the language of beer, beer styles, and and uh, you know they're not they're not just trying to remember three words, but they actually know what those styles are. And they're familiar enough with them so that when somebody says, hey, this is a, an ESB or an Imperial Stout or whatever it is, they know what that is and they're able to, 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 dis, to discuss it and, and explain it to the customer. So when you don't have that uh, complexity, then I think the, the key focus of the program is on quality, uh, beer quality and, and service quality, clean glassware, proper dispense, uh, not, not uh, handling the beer poorly so that it, it takes on taints or off flavors before it's served. Um, those things are useful no matter what sort of beer you're, you're serving, no matter what range of beer you have available uh, in a bar. So there's always applicability uh, of the program, but certainly as you start to have more styles and more complexity in, in the product offerings, then I think you know the Cicerone becomes more and more useful. Do you feel like we're, we're winning that battle, though, with the quality of beer service um, in terms of, yes, yeah, you know... In, in the States or in Australia? In the States. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, in, in the States, uh, I think definitely so. Um, beer quality, you know, beer service quality has definitely gotten better in the last 20 years, absolutely. Um, and that, you know, is not uh, due to, to Cicerone necessarily, although we probably have helped contribute to that. But there have been efforts by a lot of organizations, including the Brewers Association, including a number of individual breweries um, that have, have made efforts to uh, educate and uh, put emphasis on quality in the field. Um, you know, we have a, or an organization like Boulevard Brewing Company that had uh, Neil Witte, who's one of our master Cicerones, whose, you know, uh, job was field quality management. And uh, he was out there in bars, uh, tasting their beer, talking to the bars about the proper way to dispense beer, proper way to clean glassware, you know, basically all the things that Cicerone's involved in. That basically was his job as a representative for that brewery. And there are other breweries doing that as well. So all of this together, Cicerone, the individual brewery efforts, the Brewers Association efforts, all of those things together have definitely led to an improvement in overall quality of beer service in the United States the last 20 years. One of the things that um, is really drummed into you when you are studying the Cicerone program is about serving sizes, advising people about the strength of beers. Um, that's actually something that I think we're a lot ahead of um, the US in Australia. Um, in my travels I've, I've found that you often get, don't get a choice of how big the glass right. is. Is that, is that something that you think will change or why, why, is, there, why, why is there that sort of reluctance? Uh, yeah, I don't know and I, and I don't know what role uh, government regulation plays in that uh, in Australia uh, but here there is no regulation of uh, pore size, uh, 
uh, promotion of individual pours, things like that. You know, one of the rants that uh, the the beer enthusiast uh, community will go on from time to time um, is, you know, I ordered a pint of beer and they brought me, you know, something that wasn't a pint. And it's like, well, yeah, because they don't serve beer in pint glasses at that facility. Or it's something that looks like a pint glass or what you think is supposed to be a pint glass, but in fact, it only, you know, holds 14 ounces instead of 16 ounces or, or whatever it is. And there's no, you know, legal legal measure uh, regulation in the states that says you have to either state what, what the quantity is that you're buying or that you have to show on the container how much it holds or how much has been dispensed into the vessel. So that lack of regulation does create this sort of Wild West uh, scenario, um, and it really is up to the consumer to decide, you know, how much beer they're receiving and whether the price they paid was reasonable for, uh, for that thing. And their only choice really is to vote with their feet, you know, to go somewhere else if, if the, the, the service and uh, the, the, the serving and the price uh, don't seem to line up. And ultimately, that's really your only recourse when it comes to quality of beer as well. You know, if the glassware isn't clean, if the uh, beer is off flavor, if the, clearly the lines haven't been clean, it's like, well, you know, the best thing to do is go somewhere else. No worries. Ray Daniels, thanks very much for your time. Yeah, nice talking to you. Thanks for being on Radio Bruce News. Happy to do it. Cheers. Take care. In the garden. What a garden. Brews News is made possible by Brewpack, Australia's number one craft contract brewer. With over 100 craft beers and ciders on the roster and counting, Brewpack specialises in offering growing craft breweries a home for their packaged and kegged beer, no matter how crafty. Serious about handmade beers, and with an open-door policy, Brewpack's brewers love having passionate, hands-on partners in the brewery. Thinking about craft contract brewing? Think Brewpack. And uh, yes, we thank Brewpack for not only making a whole lot of great craft beers possible, but also for making this podcast possible. There you go, Prof. We might have to get uh, James in more often. Nice, nice uh, little bit of interviewing there. Yeah, he did well. With a, a croaky voice and everything. With a croaky voice, yes. He's uh, got the curse of the traveller. That's it. But he's, uh, he's enjoying some well-earned rest this week and uh, travelling around, posting lots of photos of his uh, beery journeys. But he'll be back, I think, in a little over a week. Now, Prof, that's the show. Great show. Uh, really always good to, to chat with you. Uh, listeners, if you want to join in the conversation and let us know what you think, you can call and leave a message by phoning 0730401508. Uh, you can make suggestions for interviews, ask questions, and give us feedback by emailing producer at bruisenews.com.au. And you can become an executive executive producer or producer if you like the show and would like to help us prof you've been listening back to the uh, past episodes that freya's been doing she's been doing a pretty nice job yeah yep definitely of getting the audio quality i think there's going to be a few dogs barking in this one uh because we're recording early we weren't able to get more salubrious environs that we've been recording at recently so there may be a few sounds that she needs to work through but no she's been doing a great job if you like the audio quality and you would like to help us to keep improving you can become a producer or an executive producer by making a small monthly donation or even just a one-off donation for as little as the price of a cup of coffee a month and uh prof we do have a new executive producer Stephen kubula uh, kubula hopefully i've uh, pronounced that correctly has come on as an executive producer last week so steve thank you very much hope you're enjoying the uh, the podcast and thank you very much for uh, coming on as an executive producer and finally 
as always, one of the best ways that you can help us to help people find the show is to leave feedback on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Uh, leave a review. Well, hopefully you leaving a good review, but leave any sort of review uh, and let us know what you think and let other people know why the show is worth listening to. Uh, Prof, you got anything coming up this week? Um, yeah, I'm off to oh, stomping around tonight, actually, taking the uh, the entire Starbucks executive out for a, a curated, uh, it's a bit of a social event, but they, they like to do sort of different sorts of food and beverage tastings and get right into, you know, learning something new. And none of them are particularly familiar with beer. So we're going to go out there and uh, drink through some samples and have a brewery tour and a feed and do a bit of a, a beer 101 while we're having a bit of fun. So that'll be me done for this week. Nice one. Uh, well, uh, as I said, next week we have got Bart Watson on the show. So uh, it's a fascinating interview about all of the economics of the North American beer scene and trying to draw some parallels or some lessons for the uh, for the local beer scene. So join us next week for that episode. And I think from memory the week after, we've got Peter Fielding, who is not only the chair of the CBIA, and we caught up with her in that capacity uh, late last year, but we're speaking to her about Burley Brewing. I don't think we've ever done an episode on Burley Brewing, despite them being around for 10 years. Uh, 10 plus years now so finding out a little bit about being a pioneering brewery on the gold coast so prof always good to chat thank you very much for joining me again today and i look forward to seeing you again next week and we'll see you then see you listeners take care drink good beer And we're out.